Welcome to the Electric Wire podcast. We bring you news and views on the most pressing issues facing Wisconsin's electric industry from policymakers, executives, and customer and environmental advocates. Bringing you these discussions, we are the Customers First Coalition. Here's your host, Executive Director Kristen Jilks. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Electric Wire. I'm Kristen Jilks, and our episode today focuses on a firsthand account from Maryland, a state that deregulated energy suppliers several decades ago and allows for retail choice energy suppliers to make electricity sales to customers in the state. By way of background, the Customers First Coalition, which produces this podcast, is organized specifically to ensure that any restructuring of the electric industry benefits electric customers, safeguards reliability, minimizes environmental harm, and enables the people of Wisconsin to receive affordable electric service at stable prices over the long term. We support Wisconsin's regulation of the state's utilities and were opposed to attempts to allow for retail choice in Wisconsin because of the risk and instability it poses for customers. Outcomes we can look to deregulated states such as Maryland and Texas to see how it's working and it's not working well. The promises of retail choice are more competition for electric providers that could help lower prices and giving customers more options over the electricity they're using. That sounds great, but the realities of retail choice are scams and aggressive sales tactics targeting vulnerable populations, overpayments by choice customers, volatile electric prices, inequities for low-income neighborhoods, and eroding reliability for everyone. A study done by the Wall Street Journal last year found that in the 13 states that allow for retail competition, $19 billion in overpayments have been made by customers who chose retail choice suppliers. You'll hear more about these overpayments and the realities of retail choice in my interview with Laurel Peltier, who joins us from Maryland and represents the Maryland Energy Supplier Reform Coalition. Laurel is a former environmental Mental reporter who runs a website called the Energy Supplier Help Desk, where she compares regulated versus deregulated supplier pricing. There's a link in the show notes, and you can check out her website at energysupplierhelpdesk.org. Now, here's my conversation with Laurel. Laurel, welcome to the Electric Wire. Thank you so much for joining today. Good morning. It's great. I'm psyched. Me too. So tell us more about your background and you've described yourself to me as an energy geek. I also consider myself one and I'm pretty sure many of our listeners do too. So how did you get to where you are today and when did you become an energy geek? After I went to uh, the Darden School of Business, the UVA's MBA program, I had sort of, I would say your classic MBA type life. I was a corporate brand manager, launched big products. And one of the companies I worked at was MCI. And that's important because um, we're going to talk about retail choice. And I think telecom and consumer telecom and consumer energy are are kind of almost the same product, at least the way that they're built and stuff. And I, I took some time off, had three kids, and I became an environmental writer, which I'm even not what I studied for. But One thing that hit me very quickly is if you want to be an environmentalist, you, and you want to make a difference, you need to know how much energy you use. It's, it's the biggest behind what you drive 
which I found was in a very emotional type thing. Your home energy is the second largest driver and it's a wonky topic. And I have learned very few people are interested in it. But if you talk about uh, carbon footprints and you talk about bettering your carbon pollution, you need to know how your home works. And I also learned that when you work on this stuff, I, I must be a pretty cheap person, but I really realized how cool it was to see your home energy bills drop uh, significantly, like thousands and thousands of dollars. And the two, it just seemed like this is fun. I honestly can't explain why I'm an energy geek. There are times I can see myself in a conversation at a party. And I'm like, I know these people think I'm really weird. I don't care. Um, I just, I'm glad that I am. Cause I think there needs to be more energy geeks. I think it is the secret sauce of fixing a lot of the uh, climate issue. Perfect. So you started writing on environmental issues and how did you make that bridge or maybe it's all tied together. When did you start writing about retail choice and learning more about that? Well, if you live in a deregulated energy state. So I, I write in Baltimore, I live in Maryland, and we're one of 13 uh, Northeast states that includes DC, it's not a state, and Texas. I live in a state that um, you can choose your energy supplier. And, and one thing I wanted to share with your listeners is in all the states except for Texas, you don't see massive advertising about retail choice. It is a behind the scenes type product. And I think that context has to be known. So it is an individual idea. And when I did all the research and reading way back when, like in 2013, it really seemed like a super simple way for me to take an individual action and cut my carbon pollution. I wrote about third-party supply a lot. It was easy. If you, if you knew your energy and your rights, you could save money. And um, it wasn't, I mean, if you read some of my articles and you look at what I do now, it, it's pretty clear. I was just like everybody else. I, I, I read it and took it completely at face value. Um, so that's how I got into it. How I got into retail choice is at my church, um, I had worked, I belonged to a big church and we'd worked very hard to switch our energy to a third-party supplier for wind energy. And I was giving a presentation on taking what you learn at church home. And so I'd asked a lot of my friends and parishioners, uh, bring your bg and bill in. Uh, in Maryland, Baltimore Gas and Electric is uh, uh, the largest regulated utility. So people started bringing their bills in. And, I, and just before I'm about to talk, I am looking at a bg and bill it is a very smart doctor and this doctor is paying double for electricity. And, and literally I was just kind of floored because I did not know what was going on, but I kind of pulled it together, gave my presentation about how great third-party supply is for renewable energy. And that bill just got me on my path because I'm a curious person. And I, I literally was like, what is going on here? So I was out in the field seeing it in reality. I had never experienced it. At that point, I'd been on a third-party supplier for seven years, and I'd never paid double. I didn't even know you could. Right. So what ended up happening with this bill? He had signed up with an alternate supplier, and it was a, it was a bad contract, or what happened there? Well, 
the retail choice industry is very similar across all states and across all suppliers. And if you're in a regulated state, I call it the set it and forget it contract. You essentially move in. You, you know, even if you're 18 and you're a college student, like the whole world knows you got to call your utility. You, you need the power on. You call your utility, you sign up and you stay on that one contract until you move out and you cancel. And that's not how retail choice contracts work. They are short term in nature. They are business contracts with large Fortune 500 companies. They are five to seven pages and embedded in the pricing model is consumers have to know their rates and they have to reshop their rates at the expiration of that short-term contract. That even today in 2022, I would say 85% of the people I talk to and help in our state and other states, they don't understand that. They don't see these contracts, but that is the business model. It is a teaser rate promo. Short-term can be six months, 12 months. It's generally one year. Laurel, you mentioned this, but there are 13 states that are considered deregulated states that offer retail choice to customers. Can you give us more background that you've learned about when and why states started adopting retail choice and what the outcomes have been since then? Yes. So in the 90s, actually, if you really look at the 80s and 90s, many industries were part of the deregulation wave. It you know, kind of came out of the whole Reagan years. You could just go down trains, credit cards, airlines. And once the federal laws changed and allowed the states to deregulate um, look, Enron was in almost every single in between like 95 to 99 was in every state house with what I consider is a pretty good promise. You know, if you have these regulated utilities and they were vertically integrated, right? They, they own the power plants, they own the customers, they own the distribution system. And depending on what kind of regulated utility that is, that could be good or bad. Um, some worked quite well for consumers, others, even you'll see the stories today are just not consumer friendly. So, and so in the context of what's going on now, remember I was at MCI, we all remember AT&T, MCI, Verizon. It was just, you couldn't exist without your phone being called, Hey, switch for lower telecom rates. So that's kind of the background. Each state owns its electricity program it owns its market. And Northeast prices were very expensive. There was a real need and a worry that home energy was, was being unaffordable. But the people driving retail choice, driving deregulation were corporations because here they had these massive amounts of energy usage and they had no market buying power. So like in my state in Maryland in 1999, it was a very contentious law. It was a huge law. Corporations were really driving it. Um, and residential was kind of thrown into the mix. It's interesting to go back and read a lot of what was written. Um, it was so contentious that they put in my state, they put in these sweeteners 
So they actually froze residential electricity rates for five years. It was a disaster because when they unfroze, yeah. rates were way up here. So, so many states tried it. And the, the promise was, and this is what the product is. So I think a lot of people ask, what is retail choice? The promise was you're going to be hooked up your home or business to a regulated utility. And they're going to deliver your energy, your gas, your electricity. They have the poles, they have the wires, they have um, the whole distribution system. So that's kind of called distribution or delivery. Those are the two words. In my state, we call it delivery. Mm -hmm. You also have the supply. And that's based on every home or business's usage. How many kilowatt hours did you use that month? How many therms of gas did you use that month? That varies. That supply is what was broken off. So everybody pays delivery and distribution rates all the same, regardless of whether you switch to a retail energy supplier or not. The supply part is where the competition, the consumer free market was supposed to come into play and people would be vying for your competitive electricity. It would be really interesting and everybody would be really involved. That absolutely it was the goal. It was in my state, it was economic benefits for all consumer classes. So you took a product, we all use it. I would submit very few people are actually interested in it, nor do they understand it. You split it into two products, your regulated delivery system and your competitive retail choice supply market. I hope I explained that right. And well, it's confusing. No, it is confusing. And there's a lot of different words out there to describe it, like retail choice, retail wheeling, consumer choice. I mean, there's just a lot of different ways to describe it, but I think that's really helpful for people to know that there's still going to be like one set of wires under a retail choice system, but it's that supply, the electricity supply where the competition is supposed to come in. Yes. So how I, has it been? I have to caveat the yes. state of Texas is unique and this is important because it's a massive market and they're making a lot of money there. So in yeah. Texas, so those are the 13 states. Um, and let me just tell you the big ones, Illinois, New York. If you took a Sharpie on the map and you went from like Illinois to like Maine and then down to DC and you sort of made a funky looking triangle, you would have Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, and Illinois and New York, those are the big states. And then you'd have lots of little states like ours, like Maryland, Delaware, Rhode Island, uh, New Hampshire. I am Ohio. I knew I was missing one. Um, we all uh, look and smell the same in retail choice. We have um, very little advertising. We have 8 million households have switched over to a retail energy supplier. And they're called different names. You'll see ESCOs in New York. We call them third-party suppliers here competitive electricity. It's all the same. It's just a retailer who can come in and compete for consumers' electricity. Now we're going to go down to Texas. Same exact time. And I believe George, uh, Governor then George Bush was behind this. They deregulated differently. They took the state and anybody on their ERCOT became 100% retail choice. So they don't have a regulated utility. In That's right. Yeah. You, you don't have a 
Yes. I actually have my notes for six and a half million households in Texas. Now imagine how big that is. My little state only has 2.3 million households. Half of Texas, six and a half million households, all of them choose a retail supplier. Everything's bundled all together. Everything happens behind the scenes. Six and a half million Texans, they are part of this retail choice model. They have to reshop. They are in it. If they don't reshop, as many of them aren't, they pay more. Um, the other half, 5 million households, say like Austin, they are regulated utilities, no retail choice, just like a Montana or a Wisconsin. So that is how we can compare rates, is you basically have half the state 100% retail choice, half the state 0% retail choice. So what are the differences? What does it look like? Oh. What are the benefits of regulation or the benefits of retail choice? Well, there are some benefits, which I think would be interesting maybe for you to talk to some commercial buyers and um, some power plant operators. It does look like when power plants have multiple buyers, they are better at optimizing and they have lower electricity rates. That's cool. That's on the wholesale mm -hmm. market. Yes. In the residential market, so I just focus on residential, and I'm going to put a note in here, small business is stuck in all this. I just don't have the bandwidth to look at it. Texas is a really good example. The four, Let's call it the 5 million households who are regulated. They, on average, this is from federal data, the infamous EIA 861 files, they pay 10 and a half cents per kilowatt hour all in. The six and a half million households pay 12.6 cents. It throws off around one and a half to $2 billion in extra profit above the regulated rates. So if you asked our consumers saving, they can, but on the whole, in the aggregate, they are not. And they're not saving in any deregulated state. I know we've brought this up on our podcast before with Illinois being our neighbor to the South. The Illinois Commerce Commission issues a annual report. And in some cases, customers are paying $100 per year more on average if they've chosen an alternate supplier in overpayment. If you look, I, I, I partner with the Illinois team with CUB, um, their citizen utility board. I have run every, I run EIA now for every state. And what I do, and I have this on my website, is I go one step further. And because this EIA data shows you what regulated utility customers paid per kilowatt hour, it's just simple math. They give you all the, the three points, you know, it's like seventh grade. You have these three things, you can figure the fourth one out. And I sort that by supplier um, because now that we're 12, we're solid 12 years into retail choice. So I think that's an interesting thing for your listeners to know. This is not a new market. There is amazing mountains of data about how it's going, multiple regulations out there. There's so many reports and there's so many experts that if a state was considering retail choice, there are many, many pitfalls to not do. And there's lots of data out there and expertise and research. So that's, I think, a very important thing to know. This is not a market that you would 
just organically start. There's no reason to. There's there's 14 different business cases out there. Let me just give you an example of Maryland. Because Illinois, by the way, is around $300 million overpay if you take all the different, you know, Amarin and Comet. In my state since 2014, so I I fell into this in 2016 and I saw this one bill. And uh, thankfully, about a week of calling, I had found the EIA, Energy Information Administration 861 files right there. There's an Excel file called Sales Ultimate Customer. Very easy to go state by state and very easy to just sort. That day that I found that was 2015's data and residential consumers in my state had paid $55 million more since 2014. Now there is no gas data. Natural gas is a black hole and there's really, really bad prices. Mm-hmm. We're at a billion dollars in just little old Maryland. I make an estimate for gas. I have collected about a thousand bills. I, I lowered the estimate and 700 million of that is electricity. That's lock stock federal data. That is $700 million more that little old state of Maryland residential customers have paid to choose retail choice. It's a lot of money. And and the, this and retail choice in Maryland started in what year? It started officially in 2010 when okay. though it was legislated in 1999, it started when suppliers could put their charges onto a utility bill. It started with a very, very unique regulation called purchase of receivables slash utility consolidated billing. And this is getting into the weeds and you might be like, we don't need this, but. (laughs) I think it's good to know. I mean, as people talk about it here, it's like, I want people to have all the information. We'd never know about this. So for instance, I wrote, I co-authored with a a beautiful researcher, an ABLE Foundation report in my state. I had I wrote all these articles. I knocked on all these legislator doors. I'm just like this, this little old reporter from Baltimore. And I literally thought, oh, I'm going to write this article about retail choice. And it's just going to get fixed. I, I think I was kind of your classic constituent who just thought things just get fixed in the United States. Well, after crickets for 18 months and joining some of the hearings at the Public Service Commission, I was like, wow, nothing is going to happen. And like I shared with you before, as I couldn't unsee this, Mm -hmm. I love my state. I love Baltimore. At this point, I'm in my car. I'm in front of social service offices. I'm realizing something nefarious is happening here. My low income folks that I'm helping through our food pantry at church, they're getting targeted and they're paying. They're not just paying $300 more a year, like Texans and the averages, they're paying five, six, $700 a year. So that I couldn't unsee it. Yeah. I couldn't figure out, well, these guys, these households are defaulting and they're, they're getting their power cut off. Like how are these suppliers making money? I'm not kidding for like a year. I've got, Laurel would go around. Can, can you help me figure out what about the bad debt from all these accounts? How are these suppliers? If if say I've got about 100,000 households who are paying 50% more, I know a lot of them are defaulting. And so finally someone says, 
Laurel, you need to look up purchase of receivables. Said, huh, I know what that is from my financial classes. That's a, a really interesting way where a company sells off its account receivables. Mm -hmm. they, they get the cash. Yes. And then someone else does the bill collection. It's actually a widely used financial tool in yep. many, many, many businesses. And that is exactly what retailers got legislated in many state houses. And this is the red flag that your listeners have to know about is like any good business with lots of lobbyists and really smart folks that know the regulations, they are going to do their best to make regulations work for their businesses. Well, purchase of receivables, utility consolidated billing is, I believe it occurs in eight states. And in those eight states, the regulators, your public service commissions, your PUCs, mm -hmm. not your legislators, they made regulations where a supplier, a, a retailer, a competitive energy supplier could sell caveat. Third-party energy choice rates have no oversight. They have right. no regulations. Right. The only regulations they have are with the low income, which we're going to talk about in five states. And mine is now one of them. Um, but, but on the whole, they are deregulated. They have no oversight. They can charge whatever they want. They are free market rates. That explains. So you have a contract that's short-term. Mm-hmm. A person needs to reshop, and you have rates that can be whatever a supplier can charge. So those suppliers send their charges into a utility. It is billed on the ComEd bill. It's billed on the BG&E bill. It is consolidated on the PICO bill. It's Those bills are very, very hard for consumers to read. Once that charge has been sent to the supplier, and it is billed on a regulated utility's bill as a consolidated charge it is then purchased through por through purchase of receivables many states regulators forced the utilities to buy up that receivable so you're oh, i wow right so i'm just going to talk about maryland because i don't know if pennsylvania is por but i think it is is in my state bg&e delmarva potomac edison smeco I'm missing a big one, um, Pepco, they have to buy up that third-party supplier receivable, that charge. They collect it. It goes on their balance sheets. They do all the debt collection, everything. It is no longer a supplier's issue. The supplier gets paid. That's one thing that bothers me when people make this conservative argument about retail choice because it's like the business model almost doesn't work without help from the government, additional help from governmental agencies. And it, and it comes at the significant cost to consumers. Yes. I mean, I have been very clear with everybody that there is data that supports it's this, this isn't like my story. I'm not out to kill anything mm -hmm. with the way retail choice is has been re-regulated, I would argue, on the residential side in favor of these third-party suppliers. Mm -hmm. It is so, the, the scale is tipped so much. It's caveat emptor for consumers. 
it is completely tipped in favor of the suppliers. Purchase of receivable utility consolidated billing. Um, the, the fact that you can send direct sales agents out and have them with an e-tablet and an e-signature at a door at seven o'clock at night, this little e-signature, it can, can morph over to a five-page ironclad contract. Those contracts, you can't even do class action lawsuits. You couldn't even understand them. Do you know what a variable rate is? Do you? No. Yeah. The fact that you ready for this? In my little old state of Maryland, we have 2.3 million households. There have been 2.6 million individual third-party sales. The majority of those have happened at the door. How do you enforce that? Yeah. How do you enforce it when a young, uh, well-intentioned salesperson, they need to make their money and they're going to go into Baltimore City at seven o'clock at night and talk to a sweet older later and you're going to save, here's a $15, you know, dollar general food card. She's making, she's living off of social security. How are you going to enforce that? Right. It's, and it's legal. And having first, and the biggest red flag is having rates for an essential service with no price cap, no oversight. That is just a recipe. So you take this nice little basket of regulations and you put all that in with no price caps. That is a recipe for exactly what the Wall Street Journal reported. March 9th, 2021, page one. Texas households, $28 billion more. The other states like mine since 2010, $19 billion more. It's just a fact. So while the concepts in theory have merit, and sometimes I think they feel really good, especially, you know, you know, I, I live in the States and, you know, deregulation sounds really good when it is implemented and you get into the nitty gritty, the devils in the details. And many people don't know these details try writing about this. Yeah. Do you think there's any media outlets? I'm like, it is, it's more interesting now, but we haven't even gotten to the whole low income thing. So my advice to states, cause I think I counted there's 36 of them is go into this with very open eyes, understand who is selling to you the Texas companies, Vistra and NRG. And then there's Constellation. I mean, the real R-E-A-L, the Coalition um, of Retail Energy Advancement League, um, that is started in February of 2022, and that is all of the big players. They are a coalition working together, and that's what they do. They're businesses, right? Mm -hmm. It's Vistra Energy out of Texas, NRG Energy, Constellation Energy, Calpine, and IGS. Um, Shell, Shell Energy is part of that. Mm -hmm. Shell is now a big player in this. There's money to be made. So, so learn what happens in Texas. I have an article called what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas and really understand this model and how it's been put together and make sure that your customer is first because right now it is caveat emptor. Right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the promises of renewable energy that sometimes 
drive customers towards an alternate supplier because I understand, you know, wanting to offset your um, energy usage with renewable energy, especially if you can't put solar panels on your own residence. It's like, can I make a difference this way? I know you've done some work around the promises they're making versus the the reality of the renewable energy they're delivering to customers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. My thesis is that once the retail energy supplier industry kind of got exposed for the rate increases, I think naturally you need to find your differentiator. And they quick quickly pivoted. Just You can just look at all the websites. They're, they're solar panels and wind turbines. I mean, we're all there. We're like, we're going renewable. Mm-hmm. So on retail choice, and I want to be clear here, this is not about community solar. Mm-hmm. I am not a community solar expert. I do know it quite well in Maryland. Um, that is a different product. What started concerning me in Maryland is uh, there was a bill in 2021 to introduce the Texas model of retail choice, which would eliminate all of our regulated utilities and follow their model down South, which is hundred percent retail choice. Yep. That means all my low income customers who are getting utterly preyed on, that's everybody we know. And so it didn't even, it wasn't even sponsored in the Senate. So I started asking, wow, they're really, really pushing this renewable differentiator. And I had heard it's all based on these unbundled recs a renewable energy certificate. Now we're going into a topic that is, wow, it's confusing. And retail choice, retail energy providers are not buying renewable energy through a power purchase agreement and dumping it into a grid somewhere. They are pairing local grid electricity, which you kind of have to because we're all on these different transmissions. I'm right. on They're pairing them with an unbundled renewable energy certificate. They are claiming to consumers that they are providing and you have access and you get 100% renewable energy. You get 100% green. You get eco. It's 100. Um, not all products, but you have access to that. And some brands are 100% renewable energy. Green Mountain Energy, Inspire Energy, Clean Choice. That's their shtick. That's their positioning, 100% renewable energy. The product is not what consumers know about, mm-hmm. a lot of them. It is their local grid electricity, like mine at PJM. I, it's mostly gas and nuke and little teeny bit of renewables is paired with the renewable energy certificate, which is unbundled from somewhere some wind farm probably in Texas purchased at an extremely low rate. I can't even get information on from anybody on these, what kind of unbundled renewable energy certificates are you buying? They're paired together and they're charging um, 50, 60% premiums. Yeah. The issue is again, the devil in the details. When I talk to my uh, environmental friends, I'm like, and I look at their bill and I said, you know, did you know that just like all retail choice, you should have been tracking this contract. You're paying 16 cents a kilowatt hour for 
renewable in quotes supply, and that cost you eight cents with BG&E. What are you getting for that eight cents? Mm -hmm. You think, and I thought too, that my extra money, that surcharge, that premium was being delivered and growing more additional renewable energy. I felt good about it. Right. I feel like I was doing my part to lower emissions. That math from buying a renewable energy certificate to what really happens is questionable. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wrote this report to put out there. If you're buying a renewable energy certificate from a hydro dam built 50 years ago, you're not making a difference. It's questionable to me. It's it's a very, very small subsidies to these generators. And I just bought a wreck from a wind farm built in 2008 in Texas. D am I making a difference? Right. That's, that's I, I thought this, this amount of money, which in the report I was able to come up with at least $500 million in premium. Is that money just going to a retailer's bottom line? Yeah. Some of it is paying for these very inexpensive unbundled renewable energy certificates, but that product I think needs a lot of examination. The FTC says that's okay to say that. It's super confusing. I think it needs uh, 100% needs clarity for consumers. Yeah. What are you paying for? Right. And is that what you thought you bought? Right. And is And in the bigger picture, we're in a climate crisis. You know, I looked up CO2 levels today and they're around 422 parts per million. 450 is the supposed we're cooked level. Mm -hmm. We need to be building a lot more emission-free, no carbon pollution. I mean, energy. And if we're going to do it, we shouldn't be in these products where it's questionable if you're not just being fleeced and paying some supplier more money so that they can have more profits. Yep. Uh, like right now we have our first law to make sure that low income households who receive state energy assistance to pay their utility bills down will not pay for retail choice at rates higher than regulated rates. It's taken years. It's yeah. five years now still working to implement it automatically at the utility level it's just an it's so we are the product manager for it and um there's lots of competing interests but it's exciting so on july 1st yeah. it won't happen anymore i i i hope you feel proud of the work you're doing okay oh, i'm just like a, a general for question. sure good okay so what is the general mood of just you know the average customers average people living in Maryland are they like do they care about um having a choice among suppliers do they think it's outrageous that um people are paying this much more on their bills or do they generally not care that is an interesting and and I gave a stat earlier that um I have two points of two data points one is since 2010 Retail suppliers have made 2.6 million individual sales. Pretty much everybody in our state at some point has gotten a direct mailer, which we're getting a million of right now for green energy, uh -huh. a call, or they've seen, especially in the urban areas, somebody's come by your door or you've, 
you've been at a Sam's Club, a Walmart, uh, any big box store, and you've been approached about this. Overall, most people will say to me, oh, I did that. I've been burned. Yeah. There's Remember, there's no advertising. So it's not like this is a consumer product like our mobile phones where right now I know exactly what Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile. It's not at that level. Um, home energy wise, home energy is just not, it's not a cool product. I mean, I think for your listeners, be very wary of these retailers coming in talking about like consumers care. They just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really understand it. They should. Yeah. One of the reasons why I think home energy is going up in stature is because it's becoming unaffordable. Yeah. With these high natural gas rates and that whole global energy study, you know, Ukraine and exporting our natural gas and fracking. Yeah. That's how people are feeling it. Right. How about, how about natural gas infrastructure upgrades? Massive story. Big yeah. story in our state. You know, we're, we're we're spending billions to upgrade our cast iron pipelines for natural gas. Meanwhile, we're going to be transitioning to electricity. I mean, so the average consumer, one, struggles to read their bill. I have little videos and you wouldn't believe the people that are like, thank you. That's At funny. least I know how to read my bill now. Yeah. And they're starting to feel the pinch. So people are starting to take note. There is a statistic that was done um, by a connections research firm where they called, I got this actually from a supplier conference. They called retail states and asked them, would you like the old monopoly model or the new one? When they called regulated states like Wisconsin, most of the people said, oh, I would love competition. Mm -hmm. This sounds good. When they called states like mine, 74% 74% of the respondents were like, I just want to go back to the old model. Yeah. I've That's always true. thought that was a super interesting statistic. That that really is helpful to know because I know I've seen that where people are like, you know, doing polls and stuff like that. And it's like, sure, that sounds great. But then when you actually experience it, maybe it's a different story. Well, and here's like, I think a bombshell um, data point that anybody in other states should know that, um, in Pennsylvania, there's a large utility called PPL, and they did research on this retail choice. They actually dove into the billing to look at, do people do people re-engage with their contracts? Again, mm-hmm. they're, they do something there where they're actually pushing this, their year-long contracts, were people rebuying? And 74% of the homes did not re-engage with these retail. They just, they set it and forget it. And 96% of this very large sample of billing were paying more than the regulated utility within four months. That's the business model. It's called going from a fixed rate to a variable rate. Right. And who even knows? A variable rate literally changes every single month. Right. No caps. And if you're not watching your bill... It just, you know, once that contract ends, three months, six months, up it goes. Yeah. Because they've spent a lot of money to go out there and acquire a customer directly, generally with a direct salesperson at your front door. And they're not going to suburban houses. They're going to urban houses. Right. That's, That's concerning to me because 
Why? Because they know it's a vulnerable population. It's a population that is desperate to save on their home energy bills. Right. And give a, this is what industry says is different from regulated things. Hey, we give out airline miles. We give out gift cards. We give out renewable energy. Yeah. Those are all sales incentives to pull you into their model. Yeah. There is very, very clear research from Massachusetts, from Illinois, from Connecticut, and from Maryland and New York that the bulk of these profits is coming from these low income zip codes. They are susceptible to the message and they pay even higher premiums than non-low income households. That is just a fact. That is because it needs to be better regulated. Yeah. And that is not, I would say that I don't think anybody expected that. I don't think anybody wanted that in all of this deregulation. But like you said, companies are here to make money and our groups are the voice of the consumer. And what happens down in the low income areas is is horrendous. And what happens to a low income family who makes $18,000 a year, they get a cutoff notice, they get multiple cutoff notices, and their power gets turned off. And then they go to state energy assistance. And then all of us pay a bill that in Massachusetts, are you ready for this? You know, they just went through a whole thing on retail choice. In Massachusetts, they ran arrearage data in January of 2021. They ran accounts on energy assistance. They call them hardship counts, I believe up there. So we're talking middle of the pandemic. These suppliers were still overcharging big time. They a rearage, past due balance. That's how far people were behind. And during the pandemic, people were getting behind. They didn't have right. money from a job. The households on retail choice versus the households not on retail choice. These are apples to apples. The only difference is being on retail choice were $893 further in arrearages. These aren't small figures. Right. For being on a product that is supposed to be beneficial. Right. So though that's taxpayer, that's federal money, state money, sometimes ratepayer money is then paying those bills off. And that's what all of the low income reports really point to. This is not a good use of taxpayer money. So, right. so I put those data points in there to, to know that listeners can find this data and be aware of this data because there's a lot of it. Laurel, I'm going to put a link to your website in the show notes. Um, could you, could you tell listeners really quickly what your website is and uh, what you've got on there? Yes. So I, I, so there's a little joke behind it. So you guys know, when you watch Snoopy, um, there's always Lucy and she's at the thing and it says five cents above. Well, I mean, honestly, I'm called like the bee genie lady because I look at so many people's bee genie bills. And one day I'm like, damn it, I'm just like Lucy. So it's called energysupplierhelpdesk.org. Okay. My intention was to put in a library on a website data. There's, um, There's some interesting tabs for the press and for people from other states. There's something called the press. And I listed all the research reports so that people don't have to waste time. There's a tab on there called Rates Revealed. Mm -hmm. That is just pictures from bills. I think 
one thing I've learned is you can listen to stories. It's theoretical, but when you actually see something on a bill, it, right. changed, it just, it's all of a sudden you're like, wow. And then the front page um, has our 2020 results by state and by supplier who's driving this market. It has seriously consolidated in the last four years. It is consolidated under NRG, Vistra. Um, Constellation's a big player. They have not been buying up uh, brands like the other two have. So often you might hear a direct energy or uh, public power or ambit. Those are direct energies owned by NRG. Anyway, very, very interesting. So, and there's a bunch of consumer tips on what to do. So that is my attempt to share uh, from our small state what what we're faced with. Yeah, what's happening on the ground. I, what's happening in reality. And it's really yeah. neat because, you know, I had some really special people come out to, uh, so once a week I, I I work in as a volunteer uh, once a week with low-income families, and which is cool. I get to do it all, energy assistance, fuel fund, energy efficiency, mm-hmm. um, and retail choice. And, and that has been my biggest message to really everybody is there's a reality out there and it's smart for all of us, for legislators, regulators to, to be in reality, because, you know, a $2,000 home energy bill is huge for a low-income family. That's reality. Yeah. It's not low-income is where my heart is because they don't have low-income usage. They, um, so I work one-on-one with families all the time and it keeps me you know, in the ground. And then I, it's really nice. I invite lots of people from around the state and then we, they come out and hang with us and kind of see what happens on the ground. Yeah. I need to, I need to find this figure, but the public service commission here has done some investigation of the energy burden in Wisconsin. And, and obviously it's, it's disproportionately born um, by low-income customers. Okay. Well, yeah, it's that's a that's a whole show, and I bet there's some great people. You know, people yeah. on propane, people on oil, old electric heating, um, and 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 it's not what people think. It's often a senior who is living on social security, and they've worked, right. they their part, and they they just didn't make a lot of money. That's yeah. So I think that's important. Laurel, our last question for all of our guests is, if you had all the power in the industry, what would you do with it? I would re-regulate a lot of things. I would, for sure, on retail choice, it it needs a price cap. And I think New York is leading leading the effort in that area. You know, retailers have a place and they need to make money is re-regulating some of these very basic things. I would also have everyone sit around the table and ask, what are we going to do with all these stranded costs? You know, you have massive gas infrastructure investment going on right now under the guise of safety because of the San Bruno accident. We have billions being invested, um, being paid by ratepayers. And how does that work in an electrified country? Yep. I mean, just the, the tensions are there. And then I would get as much money as possible and get these grids upgraded so that the solutions are out there. You know, we have and there we have renewable clean energy. We have way more battery powder. How to quickly, quickly, quickly figure out getting our carbon pollution down. And that's I mean does it get even it doesn't even get any more complicated than that but you have these these corporate 
players in there and, and they want to make money. Yep. So how do you make them whole? I mean, how do you ask a corporation to basically shrink itself? I've never seen that in the United States. I don't think oil and gas isn't doing it. I And, and I think that's where government's role comes in um, because it's not good out there. The climate is really starting to rear its head earlier than we thought. So I okay, would- that, that reminds me of a question I was going to ask you when we were talking earlier. It's like, if the problem that people are trying to solve for is the cost of energy, and you're saying that retail choice is not necessarily the solution, it's it's driving up costs long-term versus pushing them down. Do you have any other thoughts on bringing down the cost of energy for customers? Uh, yeah, I think you need, you need to get, well, first of all, it's for... A regular consumer, an everyday consumer, you need to start thinking that energy efficiency is sexy. It mm-hmm. is It is shocking to me how it's literally on the same level on your to-do list as buying toilet paper. It's And if you get smart about energy efficiency, like in my state, we have a great program called Empower Maryland. Mm-hmm. And we've all been paying into it for 2000, since 2008. And we... We moved into this, my, our first house, we completely made energy efficiency. I took care of all the rebates. We did um, air sealing, insulation, LED, changed out the heater. And uh, we went from oil to then natural gas, uh, $4,000 a year savings. I was able to pay for a lot with that. And my old hunk of a house was more comfortable. Is it boring construction? Absolutely. But if you have an older heater, if you haven't had a green audit on your house, you are going to be shocked mm-hmm. at simple things. And also you're going to be shocked how leaky your house is. Yeah. My current house right now, we just had all this done in three months. The leakage of this beautiful old, like mid, this Maryland has beautiful old homes, mm-hmm. um, 40% less. And it's because we walked into the the attic and there's there wasn't an ounce of, insulation. Oh, wow. And air sealing. And, um, we fixed a couple, we didn't realize like one door with that. They do these really cool blower tests. There was so much air coming in. I I fixed the door, that huge clunk of a freezer so that you can go to Sam's club and load up on meats that just freeze these old appliances. Um, here's a big one we're on heat pumps and I've learned just put, I put a few fans in certain rooms and the air, the cool air is flowing. Um, people are shocked when they see how low our energy bill is. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just a waste of money. Like I always say, we have this really fun, um, everybody has like a Wawa or we have called Rofo here. You know, it's like your seven 11 and my teens just loved it. You know, I'd be like, here's a 20, you guys go hang yeah. out and all your junk food. That's that's what most people's homes are like. They're just standing in front of a 7-Eleven. They're like, teenager, here's a 20. And I'll say, do you do you ever read your bill? And they're like, my number one thing I say is get off of e-billing. Print mm-hmm. that sucker out. Yeah. Read home energy reports. Like, I think you're going to be surprised how, especially if you're in a single family home in an older part of the country, I think you're going to be surprised how much energy you're using. Fix it. Because yeah. that's like a 401k, that's money coming into your account 
yep. those savings. Then you get to spend it on the fun stuff, you know, the new quartz countertops and all that. But that should be the first thing when you go into a house um, is fix it. And it's if it's expensive and it's a heater, well, do the math. Look, 10 years out, you're wasting a ton of money. Yep. So energy efficiency. Um, states, some states are awesome at it, but I just read this article in Texas how they have one of the, the lowest energy efficiency rates around and they're suffering big time. I'll just note for our Wisconsin listeners, since we're based here, we have the focus on energy program and I can put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's a it's a robust program that has been around for 20, 25 years. I think they just maybe celebrated their 20th anniversary is one of the best energy efficiency programs in the country. So uh, that's fantastic. And it's exciting. I used to call it the Rocky mountain high when you get a utility bill and it's, you know, a solid 40, $50 less. You're just like, yes, nice. Nice. That's the money. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this and to share your expertise. And I think it's really, really helpful. All of the things we have to consider here. Yeah. It's an essential service and, um, we need to be, I think, uh, we need to care more about these bills there. There's so many policies colliding on utility bills now, and people are really feeling it. Thank you so much, Laurel. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please support our work. You can subscribe to the Electric Wire podcast if you haven't already. And you can follow us on Twitter at The Electric Wire. Thanks also to the members of the Customers First Coalition for supporting this podcast. Our members are Dairyland Power Cooperative, Madison Gas and Electric, the Municipal Electric Utilities of Wisconsin, WPPI Energy, Renew Wisconsin, the Citizens Utility Board, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 2150, and the Wisconsin Electric Cooperatives Association. Thanks again for listening. We'll have a new episode next month.